Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I thank the Lord for Dr. John MacArthur. I thank the Lord for Grace Community Church. I thank the Lord for the Shepherds Conference. It is good for us to be together here one more time. Get your copy of God's Word and be turning with me to the Psalms. I was assigned the subject, the suffering of the remnant. I was given several recommended texts to choose from, however, <laughs> I got heads up of, about what would be taking place tonight, that this week the Psalms of Grace would be released and that tonight we would be singing psalms together. So I couldn't resist but to preach a psalm <laughs> after we have finished singing from the psalms. And so I want to breathe a word of prayer and then I want you to hear the reading of God's word and we'll consider tonight what God will say to us out of what he has already said to us in his holy word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are indeed great and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. From the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun goes down, your name is worthy to be praised. We praise you for the privilege of being gathered together tonight to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray now simply that you would Cause our worship to go higher as you deepen our understanding of your word. We pray with the psalmist tonight. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Give us understanding. And we will observe your word and keep it with our whole heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 11. <clears throat> to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. They shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. 
Amen. It is a foolish person who refuses to take advice from others. No one knows it all. Everyone has blind spots. You only rob yourself if you refuse to listen to other people. But you also rob yourself when you listen to the wrong people. Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In a real sense, Psalm 11 shows the godly how to respond to worldly advice. James Montgomery Boyce notes that Psalm 11 contains, more specifically, faith's response to fear's counsel. David wrote Psalm 11 during a time of crisis. We do not know, however, the specific circumstances that prompted this psalm. It may have been a personal crisis. Verse 2 says, the wicked bend their bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. But then the very next verse suggests that this crisis may not be merely a personal crisis that David faced, but a larger societal crisis. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Whatever the unspecified crisis that prompted the writing of this psalm, either by internal counsel, well-meaning advisors, or natural response, the advice is that David should flee, should fly away like a bird to his mountain. Some read this as a psalm written in response to David's conflicts with King Saul. Others read this psalm as being written in response to David's conflicts with his own son, Absalom. But in both of those situations, David fled for safety. Here, He finds himself at a place where running away was not an option. To flee would reflect fear rather than faith. To flee would suggest that the trouble he faced was greater than the God that he served. And so David refused to heed the well-meaning but doubt-filled advice to fly away. He was determined to stand firm with confidence that God is still in control. Times of crisis, 
worry, doubt, and fear instinctively cause us to ask God to move it or to move us. Move them or move me. The Lord many times does not answer that prayer. There's nothing inherently wrong with relocation during times of trouble. In and of itself, David fled from Saul. David later would flee from Absalom. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples that if they persecute you in this town, flee to the next. I can't read this psalm without thinking about Christian missionaries who serve the Lord in dangerous places and who need wisdom from above to know when to stand and witness and when to run and hide. I believe there are times when the wise thing to do is to get out of there in Jesus' name. (laughs) But there are other times when to flee would betray the name of the Lord. Psalm 11 represents one of those times. Psalm 11 reflects a time in David's life where faith demanded that he hang in there. Oh, friends, this is a word to the threatened sheep we serve. I grew up in this city. I'm old enough to remember as a boy when the mayor of Los Angeles would come to the Baptist Ministers Conference on Monday and seek the minister's advice for various issues he was dealing with and ask them to pray for him. I'm old enough to remember my daddy's church in the inner city where there was gangs and alcohol and drugs, but they were careful not to do their dirt on the Lord's property. I remember riding in the hearse with my father after funerals and as the procession of the funeral passed by, men on the corners would take off their hats out of respect. So much has changed culturally in such a rapid amount of time. It is obvious that the church of Jesus Christ in this contemporary culture, we are playing away game. And to the degree our people would be devoted to Jesus, they will be threatened. They will be ridiculed. They will be persecuted. They will be canceled. They will be afflicted. 
And not only should we think about this psalm tonight as a word for threatened sheep, may I suggest that we should meditate on this psalm tonight as a word to troubled shepherds. It feels like every week I'm getting news of some pastor who has resigned from his church. Now, I'm not just talking about resignations that are the result of doctrinal compromise or moral failure or financial mismanagement. I'm talking about hurt, scarred, tired pastors who are giving up because they keep getting bit by the sheep they serve. The temptation, as David says, is to fly like a bird to your mountain. What you find in this psalm is a call to steadfastness. And this call to steadfastness comes with a blessed assurance tonight, friends, namely that the one who trusts in the Lord is safe and secure in every situation. May I say that again? The one who trusts in the Lord is safe and secure in every situation. W. Graham Scroggie stated it succinctly. There is safety in steadfastness. So the question on the table tonight is, what do you do? What do our people do? What do we as shepherds do when you are tempted to fly away? Psalm 11 responds by asking the right question and giving the right answer. Consider both with me tonight. Consider first the question faith asks in a crisis. The question faith asks in a crisis. Psalm 11 is categorized by some as a psalm of lament. A lament is when the psalmist, of course, sings the blues about the difficulty of his circumstances and cries out to God for deliverance. Psalm 11 seems on the surface like a psalm of lament, but it is actually a song of trust. The first Three verses of the psalm describes whatever this crisis is, be it personal or cultural, in very dark images. Yes, but things are not as bad as they seem. Those around David seem to have a doubt-filled perspective. But he responds with a statement of faith and a question of faith. See them both in the text. The psalm begins with a statement of faith. In the Lord I take refuge. This opening statement is the theme of the psalm. In the Lord I take refuge. This psalm is not about what David 
faced. The psalm is about who David trusted. Before we get to the foundations and the archers and the trouble that he faces, he begins by declaring, in the Lord I take refuge. A refuge is a hiding place where one hides for safety in times of trouble. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet David needed a refuge. Tests, trials, troubles arose, and David needed a place of refuge. It is a significant reminder, brothers, tonight, that faith in God, love for God, and service for God will not exempt you from life's dangers, toils, and snares. Just because you're doing the Lord's work doesn't guarantee things will go your way. The question is, where do you turn? We must not look for refuge in self-help or sinful people or material things. God alone is our reliable refuge. Or as Psalm 46 declares, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. And so the psalm begins with a statement of faith, and then it moves to a question of faith. Verse 1a, David announces his faith in God with a testimony. But then in the rest of verse 1 through verse 3, David affirms his faith in God with a question. There are those who have negative opinions about the crisis David faces, be it personal or social. And the counsel given is that he quit and flee and hide. And he describes the crisis with three graphic word pictures. There is first a defenseless bird. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? This bird, brothers, is not a mighty eagle. It's a defenseless little bird. The bird in the street that seems so courageous until the car approaches and it quickly flies away. David is viewed as a little bird in a busy intersection and his only hope was to fly away before he is run over. Fly away to your mountain. In his conflicts with Saul and Absalom, he fled to the wilderness. But here, the advice is that he fly away to the mountain. What appears to be strong and stable and secure. But here we are reminded that we must not put our faith in in the things that we can see. We walk by 
faith and not by sight. Later, the psalmist will say, I will lift up my eyes to the hills and ask from where comes my help. And my help is not in the hills. My help is in the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The crisis pictures David then as a defenseless bird. And then there is the picture of a creeping archer. For behold, look, pay attention. The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Most likely, the poetic language of verse 2 describes slanderous words, not military conflict. Psalm 64, verses 3 and 4 describe the wicked as those who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. When we, when we children in the play yard sing, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And then you grow up to find that words can hurt in places sticks and stones can never reach. Words hurt, and they are strategic tools the enemy uses to attack the faithful. Slanderous emails, mean tweets, cancel culture. Can be used strategically like swords and arrows. And yet, David doesn't seem to view the matter as personal. He views it as something moral, not personal. It is the work of the wicked. It is the work of the wicked against the upright in heart. This is spiritual warfare, David describes. The wicked are revealed by the manner in which they fight. Notice the end of that second verse. They shoot in the dark. The the, the wicked. Shoot in the dark as a cloak and cover for their unrighteous deeds. But things get worse. Verse 3 further describes the matter as a shaking foundation. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In a book written in 1939, an author described verse 3 as the burning question of the day. What would he say about the day we live in? The foundations are being destroyed. 
You can fix a lot of things in a building. But if the foundations crumble, the building is coming down. David uses this as a metaphor for law and order that is being upended by social unrest, political upheaval, military conflict, ethnic hostility, and even religious hypocrisy. The foundations are, he says, being destroyed. What then can the righteous do when there is chaos? and trouble, and affliction, and immorality, and hypocrisy all around us. This rhetorical question is meant to present a hopeless situation, a hopeless situation that would cause one to conclude that the only hope is to fly away to the mountain. But brothers, verse 3 is not, with all due respect, verse 3 is not the burning question. The burning question is in verse 1, not verse 3. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? Fear runs away, faith stands tall. Remember, in the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah and Samballot threatened Nehemiah. And he asked in response in Nehemiah 6 and 11, am I the kind of man that would flee? Brothers, what kind of man are you? Well, let me ask that question in bigger terms. What kind of God do you serve? If you are a little God who is threatened by arrows and bows, then you best flee. But if you serve the Lord who reigns over heaven and earth, stand firm and trust in him. And so the opening part of this psalm shows us the question faith asks in a crisis. The rest of the psalm shows us the answer faith gives in a crisis. In verses 1 through 3, David is counseled to fly away to the mountain. Verses 4 through 7, he declares his determination to stand firm because of his confidence in the Lord. Derek Kittner calls this section of the psalm the forgotten dimension. Take note that in verses 1 through 3, the Lord is not mentioned. Faith turns into fear when you don't factor God in.
Verses 1 through 3 focuses its attention on what's going on. The solution in verses 4 through 7 is to turn your attention to the Lord. Verse 3 asks, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verses 4 through 7 answer. And when you consider the answer, the answer is not about what the righteous do. The answer is about who the Lord is. The rest of the psalm just sings praise to the attributes of God. He says the Lord is sovereign. Verse 4. After all of the complaining, he, he declares the Lord... Verse 1 is the one I take refuge in, and then from there the focus is on all that's going on around. But his response now is to turn again his attention to the Lord. And he declares, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. Let me summarize that for you. God is in control. He is in his holy temple. It's not a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. This is his heavenly dwelling place. God is transcendent. He is untouched by the chaos and the confusion of the wicked of this world. He is in his holy temple. And he does not merely reside in heaven. He reigns from heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Again, Kittner says, the king is in residence, not in flight. Is that good news to you tonight, brothers? With all of the reasons to be concerned about the things that are going on all around us in society, thank God the Lord is not pacing heaven's floor. He has not been rushed off to a war room to figure out a response. And hallelujah, he has not been rushed away to some undisclosed location for his own safety. (laughs) The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 may be the most succinct description of the problem in the society that we live in. In sinful rebellion, wicked men have declared war against the Lord and against his anointing. But Psalm 2 verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Our God is the God that spoke the world out of nothing. You can't frighten him. He's got the whole world in his hands. So verse 4 suggests that he's, he's not just reigning in heaven. He's in control of what happens on the earth. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. God's authority is not some theoretical truth. For he is in heaven, not involved in the circumstances of the world. Whatever crisis may arise in your life and in the midst of the chaos in the world around us, the psalmist says, nothing happens behind God's back. He sees it all. Proverbs say the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He tests as metals are tested by fire. He tests, says the psalmist. Thy list tests the children of men. Mark it down, brothers. The Lord knows who is real and who is not. He sees all. His eyelids tested children of men. And can you see in this verse a subtle affirmation of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the priest in the holy temple, who is the king on the throne, and who is the prophet who sees all? The Lord is sovereign. Likewise, the Lord is good. Notice the provocative way the goodness of the Lord is described in verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord knows, he sees the difference between the righteous and the wicked, and he treats them accordingly. The Lord tests the righteous, which is just another reminder tonight, brothers, that a life in devotion to God does not guarantee a trouble-free existence. God tests the righteous. But oh, can you hear Job saying, he knows the path that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. God tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked 
and the one who loves violence. <laughs> the old axiom says, you know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Without stuttering, David says, the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Very rarely is God spoken of this way as he does, David does here poetically, describing God with a soul. And he says God has a soul-deep hatred for the wicked and for the one who loves violence. Feels like we can't catch our breath from one tragic event in society around us before we get the breaking news of another tragic event. We live in a time of not just unspeakable violence, wicked violence, but those who would make excuses for the wicked people who commit violent acts. But hear the word of the psalmist, God hates the wicked and those who commit violence. This is the neglected aspect of divine goodness. God would not be good if he winked at the wicked. His soul hates the wicked and those who do violence. And this is more than animosity. Divine hatred here is divine rejection. This strong language is meant to be confidence for the righteous. Brothers, God will have the last word. He affirms that further by declaring that the Lord is just. Verse 6, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is, of course, an imprecatory prayer. Or in layman's terms, it's a get em, Lord prayer. It's strong language. It tells us something about the nature of prayer. The Psalms are so edifying because they are so honest. The worship music we find in the Psalms is not the sappy music of contemporary music. These are prayers that tell God like it is. And isn't that the privilege of prayer? That you don't have to dress up prayer. You can tell God just like it is. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And yet the other lesson to be taken is this. is by praying this way, he is not taking matters into his own hands. He is entrusting the needed justice into the hands of Almighty God. It is a warning for us to take from this text. Don't take matters into your own hands. 
Romans 12, 19, do not avenge yourselves, brothers, but leave room for the wrath of God as it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll do the paying back. I remember as a boy, I'd watch with my dad's people's, people's court. Not, not whatever that is on TV today. I'm talking about the real people's court with Judge Wapner. <laughs> and after the case was over, the, the host would say, after Wapner had finished his verdict, that if you've been wrong, don't take matters into your own hand. You take them to court. In a greater, deeper, higher way, the psalmist is saying to us here, do not take matters into your own hands. Take it to God in prayer. Brothers, take it to God in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear. I know this is a hymn, but that's a part of my theology. I subscribe to the theology of needless pain. I'm, I'm, I've accepted that some pain is inevitable in life, but I don't want to go through any pain I don't have to go through. <laughs> but oh, what needless pains we bear. Why? All because we do not carry. Not some things, not Certain things, not special things, not spiritual things, but what? Everything. To God in prayer. The psalmist asked God to rain down sulfur and scorching wind on the wicked in the same way Genesis 19.24 he did on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays for cataclysmic wrath. We know as we read Romans 1, that even when God does not inflict cataclysmic wrath, there is the wrath of his abandonment. One way or the other, brothers, God will have the last word. He is the righteous judge who will do right. But just the last affirmation the psalmist gives here, that the Lord is righteous. Verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He's on the side of the righteous because he himself is righteous. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. Brothers, as we get to the end of this psalm, 
I think this closing verse calls us beyond our outrage of the cultural matters and reminds us of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And do not those words remind us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have become like an unclean thing, Isaiah 64 and 6. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before God. As Dr. Lawson mentioned, the gospel calls for humility. Because none of us are chosen in Christ because we were better than others. We're all, we were all guilty sinners. Falling short of the glory of God. There is nothing good in us to commend to God. All of our efforts at good works fall short of God's righteous standard. But God made him Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we may become in him the righteousness of God. Because of the bloody cross and empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can rejoice with the psalmist at the end of this verse as he declares, the upright shall behold his face. Isn't that a wonderful promise? The face of God represents the favor of God. The upright shall behold his face. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's more than just a heavenly experience. It also speaks of a heavenly perspective. The father and son were fishing, and the boy started a theological conversation with his dad. He says, Dad, have you, have you ever seen God? Dad looked up at the blue sky and looked around at the trees, looked down at the water, looked in his son's face and says, son, I'm getting to a place where I can't help but see him everywhere I look. The pure in heart can see God at work in everything. Have you thought about that in the language of Isaiah 6-3? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. There is sin and evil and wickedness in the world, and yet the angels sing, the whole earth is filled with His glory. Because the angels do not view the world based on the breaking news of the day. They view all of earth, all of the world, in light of the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God. Why on Sunday morning, I don't want to sit under some body in the pulpit playing political analyst. Oh, friends, on Sunday morning, our people don't need you to recount what they're talking about on 
CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. We need news from another network in glory. (laughs) We need to be reminded he's in his holy temple. He is on his throne. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. He tests the righteous. His soul hates the wicked and the ones that love violence. He will rain down on the wicked in his wrath. He is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. This is not the end, brothers. The upright shall behold his face. Now are we the children of God, the sons of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him just as he is. As I journey through this land, singing as I go, pointing souls to Calvary and the crimson flow. Many arrows pierce my soul from without and within. But my Savior leads me on and in him I will win. Oh, I want to see him. Look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares are past. Home at last. Ever to rejoice. I got to sit down. I'm getting happy there. (laughs) But let me just add one more line there. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Some of you brothers are going home to a hard work. Don't fly away. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for reminding us that you are our refuge and strength and help in trouble. We can't deny the confusion and the chaos and the corruption in our lives and in our communities and in the world around us. We are tempted to be overwhelmed and frustrated and discouraged. Lord, help us to look up and remember who you are, what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessed assurance that the good work you have begun in us, you will complete at the day of Jesus Christ to the praise of your glory. Amen.